It was back in the days when uh, doctors still made house calls. And a young country doctor was just starting his practice, just getting started. And late one night, he got a call from a farmer who said, Doc, come quick. My wife is seriously ill. So he grabbed his little black bag, and he rushed out the door and hurried to the farm. Farmer met him out in the yard, ushered him into the house and to the bedroom where his wife lay sick. The doctor took one look at her, told the farmer to step outside and shut the door. In just a moment, the doctor stuck his head out the door and said, get me a screwdriver. So the farmer ran to the tool shed and got a screwdriver, came back, handed it to the doctor through the door. The doctor shut the door. The farmer stood out in the hallway, wringing his hands, pacing back and forth. He could hear moans and groans coming from the bedroom. And in just a minute, the doctor was back at the door. He stuck his head out and he said, give me a pair of pliers. And the man took off and Back to the shed, got a pair of pliers, came back, stuck him through the door. The doctor shut the door, and the farmer again can hear the moans and the groans coming from the bedroom. In just a couple of minutes, the doctor comes back, sticks his head out the door, and says, Give me a hammer and chisel. The farmer has had enough by now. He says, Wait a minute, doctor. What's wrong with my wife? The doctor said, I don't know. I can't get my little black bag open. Jude doesn't have that problem. Jude knows what's wrong. This is week seven of our series on the book of Jude, the series we're calling Hey Jude. For the better part of this summer, Jude has been telling us to keep our guard up, to be ready to stand up and to fight for the faith, to protect it from those people, those forces that would try to destroy it. And for the first 16 pages or so, uh, we've said several times now, Jude ha- paints a pretty bleak picture. I mean, the, the tunnel has been uh, dark. The road's been long. It, the path has been rough. But Jude doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't mince any words as he warns about the danger of the apostates, those who uh, profess to know Christ but don't really possess knowledge of him or, uh, or possess salvation, those who turn away from the truth. But then in in verse 17 are two little words that we ought to take note of. But you. Because now, Jude has been dealing with the the false professors of salvation. Now, he's going to be dealing with the actual, the real possessors of salvation. And he opens up his little black bag and he pulls out the remedy for apostasy. He's going to show us some practical ways. He's going to give us something we can sink our teeth into and grab a hold of that we can use to guard ourselves and our church against the dangers of apostasy. But first, you know what he's going to do. He's going to do exactly what he's been doing. First, he gives us another warning about apostasy. It's easy enough for us to get discouraged when we read this little book. It's easy enough for, for us to say, Pastor, what do you want me to do? I mean, it seems that there's a rising tide of apostasy in our 
culture. I'm just one person. Uh, What can I do? Well, Jude writes to people that felt that exact same way. Apostasy is running rampant, and he wants to protect the church, and so he gives them a reminder, first of all. He gives them another warning about apostasy. It's in verse 17, Jude 17. He says, But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. It's a principle that has stood up for over 2,000 years. That means it's solid, it's sound, it's valid. And it can help to guard the church against apostasy. The principle is this. The teaching of an apostate will always go against the teaching of an apostle. Always, at some point, it will go against the teaching of the apostles. Apparently, the people that Jude wrote to, some of them were caught off guard. They were shocked that some people are not what they appear to be, that they, they look like they're sound, they look like they are, are good teachers, but they're not. They're false teachers. They're apostates. Jude says, don't be surprised by that. It is disappointing. It's discouraging when people turn from the faith. When we hear about uh, some uh, preacher or some false uh, prophet who's left the path of truth, but we shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact... The fact that there exist people who contradict the Bible or who deny the truth of the Bible, you know what that does? It demonstrates the truth of the Bible. Now think about it. Okay, I don't want to confuse you, but think about it like this. If a $20 bill didn't exist, nobody would counterfeit them. Right? What's the point? The fact that people deny truth, that contradict truth, means that real truth must exist. The fact that people go against the Word of God and contradict the Word of God means the Word of God is true. It's real. It's genuine. A counterfeit can't exist unless there's something real. And so what Jude does is give a warning. He says, the apostles, the true apostles, don't forget what they said. They told you that in the last times, in the end times, the the last days, there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desire. Now, Jude, let's just be honest. He's, he's kind of a little guy, right? He writes one little book, 25 verses, doesn't even have has one chapter. Now, we know, we know that he's the half-brother of Jesus, but he never lets on in his book because he, was, he wanted the attention to be focused on Jesus and not on him. But he's not one of the big names. When you start looking back in church history and thinking about a who's who, Jude doesn't pop right out at you. So what do the the big three have to say? Let's call them the the king daddies of the apostles. Well, look at what Paul says, the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. And then the Apostle Peter, Simon Peter, says this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. There were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will 
they will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. And then the Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. When somebody tells you, God told me, you better get ready. Because maybe God told them, or maybe another spirit told them. Maybe the Holy Spirit gave them a word, or maybe some unholy spirit gave them a word. John says, don't believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. Jude says the scoffers are going to come. Some translations, maybe your translation says, calls them mockers. It's the same, means the same thing. The word literally means to behave childishly, to make fun of, to play a trick on someone. Uh, you know, when, I was, when we were little and I would pick on my brother and uh, you play that game where you repeat everything they say, you know, whatever they say, you just repeat it. Shut up, shut up. Dad, dad. My dad would say, stop mocking your brother. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with being childlike. In fact, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. But there's a big difference between being childlike and being childish. The scoffers, the mockers, mock the gospel. They'll say things like, Jesus isn't the only way to God. I mean, come on. All roads lead to heaven, right? They mock grace. You don't have to worry about faithfulness or obedience or sin. You just live your life any way you want to. Grace has it covered. In fact, don't even worry about Becoming a Christian. Don't even worry about giving your life uh, to Christ and living for God. Uh, just live the way you want to. When you come down to the end of your life, uh, just pray a prayer and you'll be okay. They mock the goodness of God. There, there can't be any such thing as hell, they'll say. A, a good God, the God that I worship, the God that I know would never send anyone to such a place. And it may make us angry, and it may make us sad to hear pastors and preachers and professors and theologians and Christian university presidents say things like that, but don't be surprised because we've been told that they're coming. The apostles predicted it. The testimony of history is that uh, they're coming. It seems like that there's not a week that goes by and you can't hear about some false teaching or some heresy. And I'm going to tell you something, and this always upsets some people when I say this, but you can't trust everything that you watch on Christian TV or hear on Christian radio. You know how people get on those stations? They simply have enough money to buy time. There's, and, and the stations have to have the time filled. They have to have something to broadcast, so they'll take money from people and kind of look the other way. While people... While some, and I'm not by any means saying all, but while some people are teaching damnable heresies 
over the airwaves, radio or television, the network, the station, just keeps taking their money. I mean, it used to be, today, I mean, we've talked about this before, but today in the age of the, the Internet and social media, that false teaching spreads like wildfire. It used to be kind of limited. That false teacher was kind of, you know, he was kind of limited to the people he could reach with a, a, his little mimeograph sheet of paper or his cassette tape. You know, just, just the people he ran into in the grocery store parking lot who would give him the time of day and take whatever he had. But today you can put it on the Internet and because it's a website and because it looks like everybody else's website. Look, there's Scripture. We'll just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. You know, I, I just get weary of having to rescue people from apostates on the Internet. I'm going to keep doing it. But we were told that they would come. We shouldn't be surprised. We've been warned. It's a reality. Then, and again, we knew that Jude was going to do this. We are just kind of resigned to it now. He gives us another reminder of the marks of apostasy. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. He spent the bulk of this book trying to describe apostates in as many ways as he could. Uh, he, he, uh, he reminds me of the old preacher who said the, the key to a good sermon is to tell them what you're going to tell them. Then tell them what you told them you were going to tell them. And then tell them what you just told them. That's Jude's philosophy. That's how he, he approaches this book. So one more time, Jude shares some marks of the apostate. He says, first of all, they're divisive. In verse 19, Jude 19, these people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. Now, listen, some people are divisive just mean because they, they like to stir up trouble. They're not happy unless everybody else is what? Unhappy. But some people are divisive because they don't know the Lord. Paul, who just a moment ago, we saw him predict that these people were going to come, he says this about their motivation in Acts chapter 20 and verse 30. He says, even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to what? Did you know that or did you read it? <laughs> in order to draw following. Let's get some people on our side. I'm going to pull you to the side and whisper in your ear. I'm going to knot together in two groups of two or three and grumble and complain uh, because we want uh, our side to have strength and, and, and to, to be able to oppose or attack the other side. Apostates sow seeds of discord and division. And Lord help you, if you call them on it, they will snarl and snap like a wounded dog. You ever tried to help a wounded dog? You're lucky if you don't draw back a nub. They will come after you. They will call you divisive. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're arrogant. The old farmer was driving down the road. This is a different farmer. It's not the same one. There's lots of farmers. The old farmer's driving down the road in his pickup truck. His wife sitting all the way on the other side of the cab. She looks over at him with a kind of a wistful look in her eye, and she says, you know, I can remember the time when we used to sit right next to each other. And the old farmer never took his eyes off the road. He said, 
I ain't the one that moved. <laughs> when you're standing, you're not moving, right? By definition, when you're standing, you're not moving. Guess what? It's not divisive to stand for the truth. Don't you want people to tell you the truth? Who wants to sign up for a world where everybody lies to you? Let me see your hand. I don't want that. We want truth. We want people to be honest. We realize that sometimes honesty is going to hurt. Sometimes truth is going to make us uncomfortable. But what we need is truth. Standing for the truth is not divisive. The people that are divisive are those that are moving away from the truth or pushing the truth to the side. The truth doesn't mean anything to them. They're, they're divisive, but also they're deceptive. The truth doesn't mean anything to them. Look at verse 16, Jude 16. These people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires. Again, it sounds like children. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. My, a couple of my kids have fallen into a bad habit. They'll do or say something that they know they shouldn't say or do. And I give them the eye. And their mother gives them the eye. And they'll say, I love you. <laughs> I love you too, but that ain't going to get you off the hook. You're fixing to find out. Apostates play on people's emotions. Right? They just want to help. Uh, that's really all I'm doing. I just want to help. I, I want to do what's right. And they'll use buzzwords like tolerance and open-mindedness and mutual respect. And, and who can be against that? Well, I'll tell you, I'm against that open-mindedness. <laughs> you can't do it, can you? They put you in a no-win situation. They'll lie. Again, the truth means nothing to them. They'll lie. They'll tell half-truths. They'll, they'll speak theological double-talk. They'll say whatever they have to say, uh, depending on who they're with. So they're divisive and destructive, or, or deceptive, and they're destructive. The second half of Jude 19 says they follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. That last phrase there in, is one word in Greek, uh, psychikos. And it comes to us from the same word that we get our word psyche and psychology. And what it, but it has an ending on it that means not or don't. And so what it means is they don't have a psyche. They don't have a soul. They are soulless. They're worldly. Jude says the apostates live by natural reason rather than by supernatural revelation. And listen, just like every one of us, what we believe affects how we live. Okay? You can say what you believe, but what you really believe will show up in the way that you live. Our beliefs affect our behavior, affect our morality, if you want to call it that. Back in verse 4, Jude has already told us that these people are ungodly and immoral. In, in verse 8, he says they live immoral lives. In verse 13, he, he turns a colorful phrase when he says they churn up the foam of their shameful deeds. Verse 16, he says they live only to satisfy their desires. In verse 18, they say, he says their purpose in life is to satisfy those ungodly desires. 
Do you want to know the real reason apostates deny the word of God? It comes back to a little phrase that some of us learned when we were kids. You ain't the boss of me. Now, down south, where I grew up, we didn't say that. We said, you ain't my daddy. <laughs> Just a word of advice. Don't ever use that phrase on a southern mama. Because she'll show you that it don't matter at all who you think your daddy is. An apostate denies the word of God because they don't want anybody to tell them what to do. They don't want anybody to tell them how to live. They don't want anybody to, to tell them, um, hey, what you're doing, honestly, is wrong. The ultimate quality that our culture embraces is that you can never tell anyone that they're wrong. You can never say to someone, you're wrong. It, 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 all of a sudden, it sounds like a duel between two Southerners. Well, how dare you, sir? How dare you tell me I'm wrong? They'll say, I thought Christians were not supposed to what? Judge. They'll say, don't you judge me. Well, guess what? Telling you the truth, telling you that the Bible says this, that's not judging. Judging is condemning. Condemning is co-damning. It's placing ourselves along God and saying, you are going to be damned to hell for what you do. That's judging. And we shouldn't approach anybody with that attitude or with that frame of reference. But there's, not, there's no judgment at all in pointing out to someone in Scripture, the Scripture says this, you're doing that. So the bottom line is, at least we can say what you're doing goes against the Bible. Now, it may not make any difference to them, but we ought to be able to say that. Again, don't you want people to tell you the truth? You want people to pat you on the head and just bless your heart, just go ahead and do whatever you want. Be as happy as you want to be, dumb as you are. Mark Twain was an atheist, but he said something one time that was so, so right. He said, it's not the part of the Bible that I don't understand that gives me trouble. It's the parts I do understand that give me fits. And that's most of us. So they're divisive, they're deceptive, they're destructive, and then they're lost. That's the real problem that the apostate has. They're lost. In Jude 19, remember he said, they don't have God's spirit in them. Now, Paul says this in Romans 8 and verse 9. Remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. You remember that when we started out, when we started out in the book of Jude, we said that an apostate is not somebody who had salvation and lost it. It was somebody who never had it in the first place. It was the people that, that, that John was talking about when he wrote this in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 and said, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong to us. Don't ever forget. Judas was a disciple. Judas Iscariot was a disciple. He called Jesus 
Lord. He had a position of responsibility among those original 12 followers of Jesus. He was the treasurer. Jesus said, he's a devil. Well then, finally, at last, Jude gives us something positive. He gives us a remedy for apostasy. He gives us a, a strategy for guarding ourselves and the church against apostasy. It's found in three words in verses 20 and 21. And let's read those together, Jude 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. Three words. First of all, Jude says build. Build your faith. The best way to do that is through the Word of God. The foundation of our faith is the Bible. Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. He says, I now entrust you to God and the message of His grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those He has set apart for Himself. Folks, every time we read the Bible, we are strengthening the foundation of our faith. It's like lifting weights. The more you do it, the stronger you get. Or so they tell me. <laughs> the more you do it, the stronger you get. Bible study, Bible reading is like spiritual weightlifting. It makes us stronger the more we do it. I want to tell you that the devil is not the least bit concerned, the least bit worried, the least bit afraid of a Christian who does not read their Bible. You've got nothing to fear from them. I mean, basically, they're like a person that doesn't even have a Bible. And I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. I'll say a little bit more of that in a moment. But you do know that there are parts of the world where they don't have what we have. They don't have a Bible. And if and one ever comes into their possession, there are so many people that want one that they will tear a few pages out and they'll give people just a few pages. And those folks will read that over and over and over and over and they'll cherish it. I showed you a video a couple years ago, and some of you may remember it, of some Bibles being distributed in a Chinese village that had never had their own copy of the Word of God. And how the people wept over them and hugged it to their chest. And you knew that they were going to read it. It was that important. If we don't read it, it's no different than not having one. John Calvin said it is impossible for man to attain even the minutest portion of light and sound doctrine without being a disciple of this book. Our faith will never be any stronger than its foundation. Pastor Scott, you're saying I have to read the Bible every day? No, I'm not saying that. I wouldn't hurt any of us. <laughs> But I'm not trying to put some kind of legalistic thing on you that you've got to read the Bible every day. You guys have heard me say before, I, I wasn't free to read my Bible every day till I knew I was free not to read it every day. But I want you to think about it like this. Would you take your car to a mechanic when you roll up in the garage, he rolls out his big 
tool chest. You know, they have this big red tool chest. Opens up the drawers, and in those drawers, he's got one wrench. No screwdriver, no sockets, no different size, just one wrench. Would you leave your car there to be worked on? Reading the Bible puts some tools in our toolbox. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible, gives us some ammunition when life comes at us, when our enemy, the devil, attacks us. We'll have something in here that we can bring to here and bring out here that will make an eternal difference in the way we respond to life and life's attacks and our circumstances. Folks, you're not going to have time to say, hang on just a minute, devil. We got a handout at church, and it had some blanks in it, and frankly, I didn't fill it out. I just kind of sat there with my arms folded and looked at the preacher while he talked. Uh, but I'm going to go get that because I might get something out of that that will help me. It's too late. And besides which, the goal of this whole thing is for you to become self-feeder, not to have me feed you, not to have some Bible study uh, leader uh, feed you all the time. It's for you to be able to feed yourself, to get your own spiritual groceries. If you're, if Ben, 24 years old, still eating baby food, we got problems. Something's gone wrong, hasn't it? If we take Ben and Sam out, out to dinner, that's the two oldest, and the waiter brings them their steak, and Vicky reaches over and starts cutting in little teeny tiny pieces, we got problems. We've got to be able to feed ourselves. You've you got to have some resources to draw on when our enemy, the devil, attacks you because he's going to. Some of you can say amen, can't you? Because you've been there, you know it. You've been through it. Wouldn't it be nice to have a full toolbox? Wouldn't it be nice to have some, some ammunition? Wouldn't it be nice to have a strong foundation? Dwight L. Moody said, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith did not come. Then one day I read, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. I had closed my Bible and prayed for faith. Now I open my Bible and begin to study, and my faith has been growing ever since. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. Well, then Jude moves on. He says, um, build your faith. Oh, let me say another word about that. He, Jude doesn't actually say build your faith, and that is probably weak preaching to undermine the point that you just made. But uh, what does he tell us to do? What did it say? Build each other. That means that we share. We share what we're learning from the Scripture. We share Scripture with one another. We, we encourage one another. We support one another. And that's what he tells us to do. And then the next thing he says is pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. The next word is pray. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer and Bible study go hand in hand. Man, that's why us preachers mention them together all the time. Prayer and Bible study. Bible study and prayer. Read your Bible and pray. They go hand in hand. And if we're, because if we're reading our Bible but we don't pray, then we've got heat or light but no heat. And if we're praying and reading our Bible, we've got heat and no light. Now, 
Light and no heat makes us cold. Heat and no light makes us uncomfortable. But when you put heat and light together, that's the, that's the greenhouse effect, isn't it? And that makes us grow and thrive and mature. And the, the key to our prayer is praying in the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us two amazing truths about prayer, mind-bending truths about prayer. First of all, Paul says this about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He says, Therefore he, Jesus, is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Now watch this. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. You know what intercede means? Pray for. Did you catch that? Jesus prays for us. Gosh, I'm glad the people needed to hear that weren't here. This is, we'd had to call in the, the police to quiet down the riot. If the people that had been here needed to be here, we're here to hear that. But that's okay. You just sit there and stare at me, okay? Jesus prays for us. No matter what you're facing or what you're going through, what your circumstance in life is, you may think everybody in this world, in this life, has deserted you, but you got this. Jesus is praying for you. Gosh. I don't know what else to do. We're going to amp the caffeine in the coffee, Josh. I want you to... Something. But there's more. I'm almost afraid to go there. You're so excited now, I'm afraid to overstimulate you. <laughs> the Bible says that the Spirit of God prays through us. Watch this. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Man, isn't that what we're searching for? I have people ask me all the time, how can I find God's will for my life? Well, how about let the Holy Spirit join you in prayer? How about let the Holy Spirit pray for you, pray through you? How about you let the Holy Spirit teach you um, the, the, the right thing to say in the right way and at the right time in your prayer? Because the Holy Spirit knows God's perfect will and He's not going to pray anything that's not in accordance with that perfect will. When we find it hard to pray, find it difficult to get answers to prayer, we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us. That's amazing. So we build our faith. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jude says, we wait for the Savior. I love that. We wait for the Savior. The word translated wait there or await in verse 21. Some translations say look for the Savior. Same, same word. It means to eagerly expect. Hopefully, by now, we're getting over being afraid of Jesus coming back. I mean, we, we've talked over and over about this, and for the last couple of months that Jesus is going to return. He, he's coming back. And I told you when I was a kid, 
you know, laying in bed at night praying, uh, Jesus, don't come back tonight. I mean, we, the youth group's going to go Six Flags tomorrow, and you can just wait until tomorrow night. <laughs> and sometimes it wasn't even something good. It's, Jesus, you know, I've been pretty bad, and I need to apologize and make amends and whatever, and so don't come back tonight. <laughs> Things would look kind of bad for me if you came back tonight. So give me a day or two to get this thing fixed. But that's how we are, aren't we? Even adults. I've met people that were Christian a long time. Oh, yeah, they're, I'm looking for the return of Christ. I just hope it's not too soon. We should have zero fear and anxiety in us about the return of Christ because our future is secure. We can eagerly expect the return of the Savior. He's coming back with mercy. What is mercy? Well, if you think about it, justice is getting what we deserve, isn't it? If we get the punishment that we know we deserve for the crime that we've done, that's justice. Grace is getting something we do not deserve. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't buy it. We couldn't barter for it. We couldn't perform for it. It was just given to us. It was something we didn't deserve that was given to us. Well, mercy kind of falls in between there. Mercy is us not getting what we deserve. Guess what? For our sin and the way that we've lived, we deserve to be punished. We deserve to die. But we're not going to because our Savior took our punishment. He took our death. He died in our place. He's coming back with mercy. And when he comes back, it will not be to shame us and it will not be to, to show a movie of our life in front of everyone who has ever lived or to, to stack the good things we've done on one side of the scale and the bad things on the other and we, we hope it tips to the right side. No, Jude says that Jesus is coming back to bring eternal life. I thought we already had eternal life. We do. But then we'll actually be in possession of it. You know, in, the, in the first service, I said, if, if I put a, a million dollars in trust for my children, when they turn 30 years old, they'll get their share of it. Guess what? That's their money, right? They, it, they got it coming to them. If they're a shrewd enough negotiator, they might even be able to go to a bank uh, a lender of some kind and convince them to lend them some money because, hey, when I turn 30 years old, I'm getting this money and I can pay you back. But they don't actually possess it. That's kind of where we are with eternal life. Now, the, the Bible says over and over and over and over that we have eternal life. We have it. It's ours. But when Jesus comes back, then we're going to enter into it. We're going to step into it. We're going to step out of the realm of seconds and, and minutes and hours and days and months and weeks and years, and we're going to step into eternity. He's coming to bring mercy and eternal life. And Jude closes out this section by telling us when we build our faith, and we pray in the Spirit, and we watch for the Savior, something awesome happens. We're safe in God's love. Now, I want you to notice that Jude does not say, keep loving God. That would be about us, wouldn't it? That, that, he's not talking about our love for God. He's talking about God's love for us. And the good news of the Scripture is that God never, ever, ever, never quits loving us. No matter what, period. Never. He never quits loving us. I heard an analogy this, this weekend. It made me think 
God's love is like an umbrella. And I can take an umbrella and go outside when it's raining and, and keep my hair from getting wet. Or my head from getting wet. Okay, my skin from getting wet. Okay, you satisfied now? I know. I didn't wake up one morning, look in the mirror, and go, oh my gosh, what happened? It's been this way for a while. Or I can hand that umbrella off to somebody, go off on my own, and get soaking wet. And guess what? It's not the fault of the umbrella that I got wet. Whose fault is it? It's mine. It's not a problem with the umbrella. It's a problem with me. Now, listen, God never stops loving us, but we can absolutely take ourselves out of his presence and away from his provision and outside of his protection. Isn't that the point of the story of the prodigal son? Isn't that how he ended up in the far country uh, working on a hog farm with no money, no friends, nothing to eat, starving to death? Did his father still love him? Absolutely. Was he still a son? Go ahead and nod your head yes, because there ain't no other answer. But he was outside the umbrella. Jude says, don't do that. Don't do And you've heard me say sin is no big deal. I want to add something to that. Listen, I don't want this to be misunderstood. It's going to be, but hopefully I can clarify it. Our sin doesn't hurt God. It hurts us. Did he already know you were going to sin? I'm sure he didn't like it. But he didn't like it because it hurts us. It diminishes us. It brings consequences into our lives that we would not have to face otherwise. That's why part of our response to grace is living that life of obedience. Because really, truthfully, folks, we get our heads around this. The best way to live is found in here. If we will do this, if we will do the things that we're taught about in here, there'll be a whole lot less crime, sin, adultery, divorce, alcoholism, drug addiction, anything that's bad or evil or hurts people in our world, there'd be a whole lot less of it if everybody lived according to what the Scripture teaches. Jude says, don't ever get out from under the umbrella of God's love. Keep yourself safe in God's Somebody might say, well, good grief. Five of the last seven messages have been about recognizing apostates and the marks of an apostate and the characteristics of an apostate. Pastor Scott, don't you think that Jude and you have um, beaten that apostate horse to death? Well, before you go there, I want you to think about this. In 1845, a single potato peeling infected with a deadly fungus from an American ship washed ashore on the Isle of Wight in the English Channel. The fungus swept across the nation of Ireland. And by 1847, 90% of their potato crop was diseased and destroyed. The problem with that is that 80% of the Irish diet was potatoes. And the result was... Because of that fungus, 1.5 million Irish people starved to death or died by disease. Nearly one-fourth of the population. 
In 10 years' time, the population of Ireland went from 8.5 million to 6.1 million. And even today, the population of Ireland is 50% lower than it was in 1840. All because of one single potato peeling from one single ship with one single fungus washed ashore. Sounds like Paul was right when he said that a little bit of sin will work its way. It's like yeast. It'll work its way through the whole batch of dough. Just a little tiny bit. We've got to stand up. We've got to stand up. We've got to stand for truth. We've got to do it with love and mercy and grace and compassion, yes. But we've got to stand for truth. Today, more than ever, now more than ever, we've got to stand for the truth of God's Word. The best remedy against apostasy, whether it's in our lives or in our church, is love for the Son of God, loyalty to the Word of God, and life in the Spirit of God. That's a prescription that's guaranteed to work 100% of the time. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.